What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This year is your year. Even if you also said that in 2022. And however you want to make a splash. Mother Nature can help you every step of the way with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Wool Runner Mizzles are shoes made from premium, supernatural, weather-repellent materials. So you can jump into this year with both feet, rain or shine. The high-top uppers are made from temperature-regulating, moisture-wicking merino wool treated with durable puddle guard technology to keep you dry and comfy. And you can take confident strides with supernatural rubber treads that grip for all-condition traction and sugarcane-based sweet foam midsoles that put a little bounce in each step. Allbirds is constantly innovating to increase the performance and longevity of their earth-friendly materials. So even on your toughest outings, you'll wear out before your shoes do. This year, make a splash without worrying about getting your feet wet with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Rural England, 1750s. A carriage rolls into a nondescript, anonymous village far from the nearest city. It sways, bumping along an uneven gravel road, its rickety wood frame creaking as horses pull it forward. On the sides of the carriage are hand-drawn, garish caricatures of human eyes, illustrated, it appears, by an amateur artist with little sense of proportion. Under the eyes is a handwritten Latin phrase, Cuidata viveri, Data Viseri. Ten servants trickle along behind the carriage, and they're immaculately dressed in leather shoes, silk stockings, and velvet overcoats. Each one sports a ponytail, tied in place with a green ribbon. The carriage snakes its way to the village square, where it halts before a stone fountain that ran dry long ago. All around, villagers mill about. Some are men, mostly older, with leathered skin and jagged hands from decades of toiling on farms or in mills. Others are women, older as well, who eye the carriage with weary resignation. A carriage, if it doesn't change the cycle of birth, immense hardship, and death, it doesn't matter. But it's different for the children. A smattering of kids scatter around the square, curious about this strange arrival in their small world. On cue, the servants fan out. 
they start handing out leaflets advertising the services of a famed oculist, eye doctor in 18th century speak, who is available today. Most of the villagers cannot read, and so they crumple the leaflets without admiring the strange romantic fonts. Those who can read do so with hefty skepticism. One servant goes to the carriage and pulls out a stepladder, setting it up right in the center of the square. Okay, this is different. The crowd's intrigued. Moments later, a man emerges from the carriage. He's tall and handsome, in that carefully cultivated manner available to only the ruling classes of the time, with an aristocratic air and skin often sheltered from the sun. Like his servants, he wears fine leather shoes and silk stockings. His coat is of deep green velvet, with brass buttons polished to a glaring reflection, and on his head is a flowing and freshly powdered wig. He's distinguished by the diamond-studded Portuguese cross around his neck. He approaches the stepladder and ascends. He looks across the crowd with a measured and calculated arrogance. He's taking it all in. This guy is unlike anything the village has ever seen before. Many of them will never travel beyond four, maybe five miles from home, ever. Their lives are experienced on the small scale of provincial intimacy. And the horizons of their world extend only as far as their legs might take them on a day's journey. So, this guy standing before them in the moment might as well be a celestial. A figure as alien as anything they will ever see. He waves a hand in a choreographed flourish, and then begins to speak. From lands so foreign they remain unknown to most all, where men stand but two feet tall, to the royal courts Britannia in Europe, where kings and queens are humbled by my unmatched dexterity and skill, to villages that resemble yours today, where this blessed vessel of God's power bestows his genius out of kindness and love to his fellow man. Only one comes to you today, and it is I, Chevalier Dr. John Taylor, Ophthalmiater. Chevalier Dr. John Ophthalmiater pauses. His posture goes rigid, and he gives the villagers a moment to soak up the magnificence of his towering genius. A voice calls out from the back of the crowd. Chevalier, is it? And what are you knight of? The royal court of a pile of... That gets a hearty laugh from the crowd. Taylor ignores it, but he's flustered, and his posture goes soft. Another voice comes from the second row. You're an ophthalmiater. What are you? Taylor sighs. Ophthalmiater. It's from the Greek. It means eye position. He gestures to the Latin inscription on the carriage behind him. Qui data vivere, data viseri? Who gives sight gives life? Surely, there is one among you today in ill health who has a long-awaited miracle on my arrival and who today could have restored what has been lost. The life-affirming power of full sight. All I will ask in return is but a humble fee for my services. A resounding silence confronts John Taylor's proclamation. The crowd returns to milling about, unsure what to make of this curious stranger. Some mutter condemnations of quackery, and others walk away. And then, suddenly, an elderly man pushes through the crowd and approaches Taylor. He's gentle-looking, a little softer on the edges than the other denizens of the village, and in his left eye are the hazy clouds of cataracts. My friend, my friend, says Taylor, uh, come to me, come to me. Taylor and the old man stand face to face. 
Taylor grabs the man's chin and leans in closer to peer at the clouded eye. You miserly soul, do you see poorly? The old man nods. Would you like to see the sublime grandeur of God's beautiful creation as it was meant to be seen once again? The old man nods. I have the means, I have the tools, and these miracle hands of mine can restore your sight. But only if you will it to be so. Do you assent? The old man nods. Good. Let's begin. Taylor turns around and waves to his servants. In the flurry of a tightly choreographed ballet, the servants prepare for what is called in the 1800s a couching procedure. One servant scoots a chair behind the old man and guides him into it. Another places a chair behind Taylor, who then takes a seat just inches away from his patient. A silver tray appears. On it are a wooden spatula and a sharp, hooked needle. Taylor grabs the spatula and uses it to push back the old man's eyelid. And then a third servant, burly and all deltoids and biceps, straining against the fine threads of his overcoat, takes his place behind the old man. Taylor grabs the sharp, hooked needle from the tray and wipes it against the green velvet of his coat. We must be confident that it is clean, he says. Taylor nods to the muscle-bound attendant, who then wraps his arms around the old man to constrain him to the chair. The crowd gathers in close, their indifference now a morbid curiosity for what might come next. Take a breath, Taylor says. All will soon be well. With the sharp tip of the needle, Taylor pokes at a spot just below the old man's pupil, where his cloudy cataracts are thickest. He's gentle at first, simply prodding the eye to test the spongy resistance of the cornea. The old man's face, however, says that no matter how gentle, the cold tip of the sharp metal does not sit well with him. The attendant, sensing the old man's revulsion, tightens his grip. And then suddenly, with no warning, Taylor thrusts the needle in deeper. It breaks the barrier of the cornea with a plop, cutting through the soft tissue. He pushes the needle in until the curved base of the instrument scrapes against the cornea, then spins the needle round in two quick revolutions, thrusts it up and down, up and down. At last, he pulls the needle out, and miraculously, when he does, the hazy clouds of the old man's cataracts are gone. The old man blinks in rapid succession several times. He can see... Another tray quickly appears before Taylor. On it are freshly baked apple slices and bandages. Taylor places the apple slice over the man's eye and then wraps his head with the bandages. Two days should do it, he says, and then it will be as it once was. Taylor holds out a hand and clears his throat. The old man looks at him askew with his unbandaged eye. Taylor clears his throat again. Ah, I see, I see the old man says, and digs into his trousers to retrieve a coin which he places in Taylor's impatient hand. Taylor clears his throat once more. Right, 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 okay. The old man digs into his trousers again and gives away his final coin. Ah, much appreciated, Taylor says, and then he stands to address the crowd. You dear loving souls, you have been wonderful, and it pains me to announce my departure. These miraculous hands gifted to me by the power upon high are needed elsewhere. God's blessings upon you. And just as they arrived, Taylor and his servants depart in a controlled flurry of practiced efficiency. Chairs are packed away, instruments are wiped and wrapped, and the carriage rumbles along the gravel road to the next village. 
they move quickly, not because of exhaustive demand for an ophthalmiater elsewhere, though there never seems to be a shortage of patients wherever they go, but because Taylor knows the clock started ticking the instant he removed the needle from the old man's eye. See, many eye surgeons of the 1700s actually boast close to a 90% success rate when it comes to something like clearing up cataracts. But Taylor, he's not as adept as he claims. Over the course of a decades-long career, Taylor's miracle hands will blind hundreds of patients. And those are the lucky ones, in some respects. An unknown number of his patients develop infections at the surgical site, as this old man today will, and die within weeks or months of the procedure. So, Taylor and his servants travel, and they travel fast. The curious case of Chevalier Dr. John Taylor, ophthalmiater, is a story of contradictions. On one hand, he's an easily condemnable quack huckster who peddles risky eye operations to vulnerable patients throughout Europe. By his own confession, he's responsible for blindness and death all over. On the other hand, Taylor does contribute significant knowledge about the eye in medicine, and his place in the development of modern ophthalmology cannot be denied. He's one of the few so-called doctors of the period to receive significant medical training. He draws accurate diagrams of the eye's structure, and he writes influential books on eye medicine. He's a man of his time who does his best with the knowledge available to him, and... As we will see, that best can both be innovative and life-destroying. But there's an interesting character quirk in John Taylor as well. As evident from his practice of treat, infect, then kill, which he wittingly or unwittingly practices all throughout Europe, it's never truly about helping people. It's about the money as a means to access. Access to all the celebrities, aristocrats and royals in Europe, even the Pope. John Taylor's relentless thirst for fame and recognition will lead him to some extraordinary places and people, even to the operating tables of music giants Johann Sebastian Bach and George Frederick Handel, where he will play a hand in their blindings and ultimate death. As John Taylor drives off in his regal carriage, two gold coins richer, he knows with each unfortunate patient, He's one step closer to the riches and access he feels he deserves. For now, he just needs more unsuspecting patience. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. The Chevalier Dr. Ophthalmiater is born simply as John Taylor, sometime around 1703 in Norwich, England, about 100 miles north of London. His father, also John Taylor, is a surgeon who, while not exactly extravagantly wealthy, achieves enough success for his family to live comfortably. Not much is known about Taylor's early life. He will later write a multi-volume memoir, but that tract, like much of Taylor's life, is more a performance of a carefully cultivated myth than a reliable autobiography. But one thing is known for certain. John Taylor's life meets tragedy at a very young age. At the age of six, John's father dies unexpectedly. A six-year-old child witnessing the death of a parent is a pain 
beyond imaginable. But for young John, it's simply unacceptable. In his eyes, John's father was more than a mere surgeon. He was a deity. So as young John watches his father's coffin disappear into the ground, he knows exactly what he must do. Follow his hero's footsteps. But not only that, he needs to become the man his father could not. The most famous surgeon, the likes of which the European continent has never seen. And yes, that pun is very much intended. Unlike most families of the time, the death of the family patriarch does not derail the Taylor family's finances. And John and his siblings are able to enjoy continued relative wealth and education. And Taylor grows into, as his grandson will later recount, a tall, handsome man and a great favorite with the ladies. He develops refined tastes as well. And in his family's memory, he is, quote, addicted to splendor in dress and to an expensive style of domestic expenditure. Eventually, he finds his way to London, where he follows his father's legacy into medicine. He's trained by William Chesildon, one of the trailblazers of early eye treatments of the period at St. Thomas's Hospital. For a time, it appears that Taylor's life won't differ much from his father's. He returns to Norwich after training to treat local patients. He knows many of them personally because they're friends, they're family, they're his father's old patients. Many tell him what a fine young lad he's become and how proud your dear father would be. There are no disasters in these early years of Taylor's career. And as far as he knows, he doesn't blind anyone. It's a perfectly comfortable and respectable life he lives in Norwich, if not somewhat boring. See, Taylor's London training has opened his eyes to the possibility of a more extravagant, a more exciting, and, dare he say, a much sexier lifestyle. While learning the intricacies of medicine, Taylor saw the fashions and torrid affairs of the English aristocracy. He saw the power and prestige wealth could bring, ornate homes, an army of servants catering to your every need, the best fabrics from Parisian fashion houses, and the thrill of romance. That's what Taylor wants. While compliments from friends and family are quite nice, they're not enough for young Taylor toiling away in obscurity in Norwich. He desires prestige and money and access to the who's who of the European nobility. He wants to be the center of attention and wants the fame and recognition his father never even dreamed of. Unfortunately, there's a problem. While Taylor grew up comfortably, he is by no means of noble blood. He can dress, walk, talk, and act as such, but in the eyes of all the dukes and duchesses of the lands, he is nothing more than a well-spoken commoner with a medicine bag. So, John crystallizes his plan. In the world of 18th century rigid European social structure, where blood is thicker than water, there is one rather intriguing great equalizer that can help level the playing field. Money. Taylor has a plan. Hit the road. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. Our sponsor today is The Jordan Harbinger Show. Which is a podcast you really should check out. And we know, we know, everybody's recommending shows these days, but really, this one is worth a listen. It's all about helping you become a more critical thinker, more informed, learn about the world, and then make your own conclusions. Each episode is a conversation with a different guest, so you have variety, but you also have Jordan tying it all together. 
and he keeps just the right pace and asks the questions we all want to know the answers to. There's something for everybody on this show. Like, maybe he's talking to an FBI hostage negotiator about getting people to trust you. Or maybe it's a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in a jungle that led to one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. It's... Just wild what you get on The Jordan Harbinger Show. Really good episodes. I also recommend Jordan's conversation with social psychology professor Tessa West about the seven types of jerks at work and how to deal with them. Really interesting. Hey. I should say it's interesting even if you love your coworkers. Mm -hmm. I do not work with jerks. (laughs) I recommend the one where Jordan sits down with Malcolm Gladwell and talks mismatched demeanors and false impressions. That one caught my eye. We really enjoy this show. And we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When it comes to therapy and psychiatry, getting the help you need has never been so simple. Because when you're able to access your provider from the comfort of your device, like your phone or computer, it means mental health can happen on your schedule. No wait times or commuting. That's a big deal. Really frees up time in the rest of your life. Talkspace is so convenient and accessible. It helps me feel supported around the clock. This is a revolutionary style of therapy for me. With Talkspace, I can send messages to my own dedicated therapist through the Talkspace platform. Which means you can keep your person updated on challenges and triumphs in real time between sessions. I don't have to wait. That's modern accountability. And the proof is reaching our goals. I underestimated how helpful therapy would be in helping me set goals and learn the tools I need for when the going gets tough. And Talkspace made this something we can both do from home, which for me meant therapy was something I could do. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code SCOUNDREL to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's SCOUNDREL and Talkspace.com. Becoming a traveling oculist is a career move that comes with great risk, but also offers the possibility of immense reward. There's a lot of money to be had in this business. In the 1700s, oculists travel by carriage from town to town offering their services. They do so partly by necessity. Eye disorders and cataracts are common in this period, but they are not common enough to support a stationary shop in a single town. There's also the little problem of sometimes blinding or even inadvertently killing patients after treating their eyes. Yeah, as we saw at the top, these couching procedures where a doctor pulls the cloudy lens of a cataract out of your eye by metal hook, often provided temporary relief before giving way to infection, blindness, or death. So for the oculist's sake, it's probably best to get out of Dodge after treating patients. Taylor, for his part, possesses the perfect ingredients to be a successful oculist. Actual medical training, a bold personality, and confidence. So much confidence. As they say, it's best to fake it till you make it. Taylor, he puts on a masterclass of playing the part before having the part. He buys a wig and soft velvet coat. He spends hours in front of a mirror. He practices keeping his spine rigid and his shoulders taut. He mimics the aloof intonations of the London leisure class. He practices his bows and hand flourishes. He buys a carriage he cannot afford on a loan with exorbitant interest and tells his family not to worry because he must spend money 
to make the money he dreams of every night. This new tailor is a collage of sincerity and absolute rubbish. He plays the part well, but there's always something just a little bit off. The aristocratic lineage he claims to have is easily disproved. Even the Latin he inscribes on his carriage to advertise his education, cuidata viveri, data viseri, is not quite grammatically correct. A cleaner version would read, qui visum, vitum adata. In 1727, 24-year-old John Taylor hits the road as an itinerant oculist. He spends seven years traveling up and down and across the land. From England to Scotland and Wales, he pursues patients with an unquenchable intensity, and he builds his own myth at every stop. His affected gait and accent become natural to him, and he accumulates wealth, hires the servants who assist him in treating patients, and, as he wishes from the beginning, his name becomes known far and wide. He is also lauded at times by the press and his medical peers, which, some suggest, is a result of quid pro quo payments. Other, more conservative doctors at the time, however, caution patients about seeking the services of the notorious Dr. John Taylor. But Dr. Taylor isn't bothered by any of the criticism. He simply waves a hand and tells the people his truth. Go to any country, any city, or any village in our dear land, and they will sing my praises. Tell me, would they do so if I were the fraud you claimed me to be? It's enough for most people. And so, at the age of 31... Taylor makes his way across continental Europe in 1734. There, the snowball of hype, acclaim, and fame keeps on rolling. In Bern, Switzerland, the famed scientist and poet, Albrecht von Haller, publicly lauds Taylor's talents. Charmed by his grandiosity and charisma, and with his savage blindings as hushed as possible, Taylor is granted a faculty position at the prestigious Avignon University in southern France. Taylor also receives additional medical degrees from Graz, France, and Basel, Switzerland in 1734. In 1735, universities in Liège, Belgium, and Cologne, Germany grant him degrees as well. Of course, when Taylor's star fades later in the century, and we'll certainly get to that, Avignon will deny that Taylor was ever a faculty member. And Graz, Basel, Liège, and Cologne will clarify that his degrees were simply honorary and in no way earned. But for a moment, Dr. John Taylor has everything he's always dreamed of. He's famous. He's rich. More than that, he's not just a provincial doctor like his father. He's important. And that's just the start of the doctor's meteoric rise. England, 1736. Dr. John Taylor, now 33, and returned from his most recent European victory tour, waits to enter the court of King George II. In a land before meritocracy, where glamour, flash, and presentation reign supreme, word of Taylor's quote-unquote genius has made its way all the way to the top of the food chain, Big George himself. Behind two large wooden doors flanked by guards is the king, the king. Taylor's heart flutters as a ring of sweat accrues at the base of his neck. But the doctor has no time to think, no time to dwell on anything, because those large doors fly open and a hand guides him into the throne room. It's a flood of decadent extravagances. There's gold everywhere, on frames of portraits that date back hundreds of years, the candelabra, the crown molding along the walls. Also in the room are advisors and hangers-on who scrutinize Taylor in his green velvet coat. 
The advisors are all wearing clothes that could be worth more than Taylor's life. But despite the pressure, the doctor's feet carry him along the red carpet. He keeps his gaze down and forward, just like he's supposed to. But he's soaking up the royal elegance through his peripheral vision. He catches fleeting glimpses of famous poets and artists and composers, even notorious generals. This is the world he's longed dreamed to be in. And now suddenly, on this day, in this very moment, he is here. Soon, he's standing before a golden throne and King George II. The king is the very image of all that Taylor wishes himself to be. George II is tall, he's handsome, and he's adorned with a custom wig, a flowing white fur robe, and gold-trimmed coat. In his left hand, a golden scepter. And when he speaks, a German accent, an aloof disdain for the vulgarities of human affairs he deems unworthy of someone of his stature. Though he's in awe of the regent, Taylor is not overwhelmed. And there, merely feet away from his king, Taylor thinks to himself, you and I, my liege, we are not so different. The king leans forward to get a better look at Taylor and asks him, do tell, who might you be? It's Taylor's moment, one he's prepared for his entire life. The question's been asked, and suddenly it's he and the king, as though they're alone, just the two of them. And Taylor trusts, as he always does, that the words will come. He begins, Long ago, in an age of an untold epoch, God granted man life and free will, and in his omniscience, he trusted his creations to live in accordance with the terrible responsibility of the gifts bestowed upon them. Many have failed their divine task, as did our progenitors, Adam and Eve, while few have lived to the true glory of their divine potential. In our modern age, my liege, there are but a few who might carry the burdens of expectations upon their shoulders without crumbling. Surely, you are among them, your highness." Today, there stands another. He is a man of great nobility from a Norwich lineage, who has been granted unmatched knowledge and skill, and whose name is spoken with reverence in every English village to the Alps of Europe. And he is I, my king, Dr. John Taylor, ophthalmiater. King George II claps and leans back in his throne with amusement. He looks to his advisors with a smirk and says to them, I think I quite like this Dr. John Taylor, ophthalmiater. Come, let us see of what he speaks. And just like that, Taylor has a sit-down, face-to-face with George II, and examines the eyes of the regent. And as he peers into George's pupils, he feels the warm breath of the king and knows that he, too, is human. A clean bill of health, I do declare, Taylor says when he's finished. Quite remarkable. Splendid, the king bursts, and from that day forward, Dr. John Taylor holds the enviable position of personal... Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A doctor to King George II and his family. Taylor's done it. He's reached the summit. He has the approval of the divine ruler of his English home. And of course, that puts him elbow to elbow with Britain's elite. He starts treating their eyes. He dines with them, drinks with them, and he gossips with them. Taylor grows wealthy and amasses everything he's ever wanted. Splendid, splendid, the king says whenever he sees Taylor. Such wonders you work, my dear lad. With all this acclaim and money, however, Taylor is never quite satisfied. He waits, a long time in fact, for the king to make his ascent into Britain's highest circles official. Perhaps, Taylor hopes, in the form of a lordship, or knighthood, or even some land, anything really, that will make the aristocratic standing he's long claimed indisputable, permanent. But that day never comes. When you go on holiday... There is no finer achievement than doing absolutely nothing. Nothing on the beach, nothing by the pool. Walking kind of nowhere and chatting about nothing. As an Expedia member, you can save up to 30% when you add a hotel to your flight. So you can have a bit more money to go out there with great ambition to do absolutely nothing. Expedia. Made to travel. The English elite, it appears, will gladly accept Taylor's services, but they will never make him one of their own. So Taylor focuses his attention increasingly more on the European continent. His position as George II's eye doctor grants access to the European nobility, where Taylor pursues titles and validation with absolute fervor. He spends much of the 1730s and 1740s traveling between France, Germany, Switzerland, and Portugal, treating anyone with an impressive-sounding name. Soon, he begins calling himself Dr. John Taylor, ophthalmiater pontifical, imperial, and royal. Pontifical, he earns by treating the Pope. Imperial comes not from any living ruler, but from Maria Amalia, the widow of former Holy Roman Emperor Charles VII, whom he treats in Munich. Royal comes from, well, the rule of threes that demands something tidy to bring pontifical and imperial together. The 1730s and 40s also see Taylor grow increasingly reckless in his treatments and procedures. In his incessant pursuit of glory, Taylor eschews his ethics and medical training and becomes willing to try anything to impress. In hopes of curing the eyes from within, he experiments with bloodletting. Out with the bad and with the good, he claims. And laxatives. Pretty much the same idea, he says when pressed about their necessity. He concocts special eye drops from the blood of slaughtered pigeons or sometimes pulverized sugar or, if he's really feeling it that day, baked salt. During this period, Taylor spends significant time in Switzerland experimenting with these new treatments. There, he blinds hundreds of patients and probably inadvertently kills scores of them, as he will later confess to a Dutch oculist. And yet, if you ever encountered Taylor yourself, you'd think he was the greatest eye doctor to ever live. He even comes up with another new name, 
John Taylor Esquire, Oculus to the King, Knight of the Order of Portugal, Doctor of Physic. To really sell it, though, he begins wearing that diamond-studded Portuguese cross, which he claims was gifted to him when he was knighted in Portugal. Such a humble guy. Really, there is no one more humble than him. Someone must have given Taylor some notes, because he eventually shortens his title to Chevalier Dr. Taylor, or, when he's in Germany, Ritter Dr. Taylor. While he eventually is knighted by the Pope in the 1750s, at this point, it's all just an elaborate ruse. And like all deceits, it cannot last forever. There is a limit to how far Taylor can take his act. And eventually, his star begins to fade. In the early 1750s, when Taylor himself is also in his 50s, he treats the Duke of Mecklenburg's eye inflammation in northern Germany. He sticks close to his standard operative script, too. He gives a long-winded, sanctimonious, and pompous introduction of himself before the procedure. His coterie of servants flutter about in their controlled chaos, and he drops a concoction of his own making in the Duke's eyes. The Duke does not go blind, and he does not die, and so by Taylor's standards, the operation is a smashing success. Only, the Duke's personal physician's been watching him with skepticism from the corner the whole time. Later that evening, while Taylor is being entertained by the Duke, this skeptical physician pokes around the visiting doctor's room. He reads the scripts for Taylor's insufferable pre-operation speeches. He sees the ingredients for Taylor's supposed miracle cures, and he knows instantly that these eye drops, at best, hold no medical benefit. And at worst, they could kill someone. He also catches sight of Taylor's diamond-studded Portuguese cross. He picks it up and turns it in his palms, and... Huh. It's lighter than one would expect of a knight's regalia. The physician takes a closer look, and it becomes obvious that this bejeweled cross is nothing special. It's nice looking, sure, but it's no marker of knighthood or nobility. And it's something that could easily be bought or commissioned in any major city in Europe. This chevalier, this knight, or whatever he might call himself on any given day, the duke's skeptical physician concludes, is a fraud. He's a doctor masquerading as a genius nobleman when, really, he's a dangerous con man. Taylor cannot be trusted, and the next morning, he's told to leave Mecklenburg and never return. How dare you, he protests, swearing that they will all come to rue the day they told him to leave. They do not, however, rue their decision. From that day forward, Taylor faces increasingly serious consequences for his actions. There had been questions about Taylor from the beginning of his career. In 1736, a print entitled The Company of Undertakers, A Consultation of Quacks, circulated widely in Britain and warned would-be patients of Taylor's treatments. But he was always able to dismiss that type of critique as jealous hearsay disseminated by lesser doctors in awe of his genius. In the 1750s and 1760s, however, the very people Taylor aspires to be, the ruling elites of Europe, do not let his transgressions slide so easily any longer. And these are people Taylor cannot dismiss with a wave of a hand or outrun. In Mannheim, Germany, Taylor is ordered to refund his patients who are harmed by his medical procedures. When news of this financial penalty spreads, a French newspaper rejoices that Taylor's, quote, charlatanism has, at long last, been exposed. 
He's then sued for malpractice in Stuttgart, Gotha, and Dresden, and craned financial penalty after financial penalty. In London, he successfully sued for boarding his patients in a private residence after surgery without ever bothering to pay the bill. In Berlin, a newspaper gloats about how he had to slink away from the city under cover of night after a hotel inquired how he might actually, you know, pay his bill. And then, in 1769, he's banished from Prague and forbidden from practicing medicine in any territory controlled by the Habsburg dynasty which accounts for large portions of continental Europe. Taylor's legal and financial troubles continue to mount. And during all of this, Taylor is married with children, and he all but abandons his family in both the personal and financial senses. While on his never-ending tour of Europe, his wife Anne and his son John Jr. grow tired of his absence and neglect. And in 1759, a notice is printed that threatens Taylor with further financial penalty and perhaps even jail, if he does not return to Norwich and provide for his family. So he goes home for a time, and then he's gone again to make further trouble for himself. Things get so bad that he's eventually forced to pawn the fraudulent Portuguese cross that gave him away. And rumors circulate that this celebrity doctor might abscond beyond the seas to escape his debts and legal troubles. The famed British poet, Samuel Johnson, even says that John Taylor is a cautionary tale of, quote, how far impudence might carry ignorance. For John Taylor, a prideful man bursting with conceit, the only thing more painful than overwhelming financial issues are the rather justified attacks on his character. Remember, for him, fame and reputation among the European elite is everything. He knows he needs to bounce back from all this negative PR because he will not end up like his father, an underappreciated healer dead in some small-town village. No, this John Taylor will be remembered. He just needs some bigger clients. Fortunately for him, and unfortunately for the world, two musical giants just so happen to need some eye care. March 1750, in Leipzig, Germany, 65-year-old Johann Sebastian Bach leans over the organ at St. Thomas's Church, where he has long worked as the cantor. His eyesight, weak all of his life, is rapidly deteriorating, and he strains to read the sheet music before him. Coupled with the arthritis in his fingers, Bach senses that his career does not have much time left. In fact, St. Thomas's, unknown to him, has already begun interviewing candidates for, in their words, the future filling of the post of Capel director there, upon the eventual occasion of the decease of Mr. Bach, known today as one of the most significant Baroque composers because of pieces like Toccata and Fugue in D minor and his cello suite in G minor, Bach is not so well known in his own time. He is well respected by his fellow musicians, but he's not famous by any means. On this day, Bach attempts to toil away on his unfinished masterpiece, The Art of the Fugue, but his eyes won't let him work for long, and he soon gives up. Bach is desperate. He's confident he has many great ideas left, but his body is failing him. A miracle is what he needs, lest the last of his genius reside forever in his mind, not shared with the world. Well, it just so happens that the infamous Chevalier Dr. Taylor is also in Leipzig in March 1750. He's there to give a lecture and demonstration. So a friend suggests that Bach seek his services. I don't know. 
Bach likely protests at first. All he says seems too good to be true. But Bach doesn't have other options. And so on April 1st, 1750, Bach finds himself in a chair, restrained by a burly man and face-to-face with John Taylor. John Taylor, whose eyes aren't giving genius or miracle vibes at the moment. Instead, Taylor's eyes scream, I must regain my pride and dignity in these waning years of my life. Bach is just another source of income, not a vulnerable human who needs help. He's sitting there, held in place, with all these thoughts swirling in his mind. When it happens, the piercing, intensifying pressure of a needle in Bach's eye and several thrashes deep into the soft tissue. Bach's legs curl, his back tries to arch, it's too much. But the burly man will not let him escape. The musician yells, pained by the realization that his desperation might remain. There might not be a miracle on this day, and that's the most painful piece of all. Several drops of pigeon's blood fall into his eye in a blur, chased by a baked apple bandage over the site. Moments later, Bach watches as Taylor and his servants depart. They are gone, as they always are, without a single word of sympathy. After the operation, a Leipzig newspaper reports that Bach has, quote, recovered the full sharpness of his sight. The miracle has come after all. Of course, the claim is likely just a PR stunt planted by Taylor, who's eager to remind the world of his medical brilliance, because he claims to perform a second operation on Bach sometime between April 4th and April 8th. Even though there are no newspaper accounts or official records of this second procedure, word on the street is that Bach himself claims to family and friends that his sight has been fully restored. Yeah, apparently the musician is ecstatic and claims that he's been working furiously ever since that second operation. Those close to Bach, however, they're skeptical. His behavior becomes erratic and there's no proof in the way he moves about the world or in actual sheets of music that he can see any better or that he's been working. Friends and family, as much as they want to believe Bach, think he might be lying or even hallucinating that he can see again. On July 18, 1750, three months after Taylor operated on him a second time, Bach experiences an apoplectic fit. After 10 excruciating days of coma and high fever, Johann Sebastian Bach dies on July 28, 1750. He's buried in an unmarked grave in St. Thomas's Church in Leipzig. Eventually, even time will forget where he's buried. To this day, the exact location remains an unsolved mystery. Taylor, naturally, is not around for any of this. At the end of April 1750, he had been banished from Germany for blinding two women. While one of the great geniuses of the 1700s dies a painful death before an anonymous, forgotten burial, the Chevalier doctor moves on without ever thinking of Bach again. Now, there's also a connection between Taylor and Bach's contemporary, George Frederick Handel, although the link is far more tenuous. His connection to Handel is part myth and a lot of hearsay, and some of it might even be true. German-born Handel is another titan of the high Baroque period in European music. Born in Halle, he spent his early years as a composer in Hamburg, in Italy, before moving to London, where he was naturalized as a British subject in 1727. Today, his compositions of Messiah, 
Water music and music for the royal fireworks are recognized as masterpieces, and Handel achieved a level of celebrity and fame in his life that long eluded Bach. Mozart himself supposedly said, quote, Handel understands affect better than any of us. When he chooses, he strikes like a thunderbolt. Beethoven, too, once proclaimed Handel to be, quote, the master of us all, the greatest composer that ever lived. I would uncover my head and kneel before his tomb. So unlike Bach, who toils away in relative obscurity, Handel is a true rock star of his time, an outright celebrity. And Taylor surely would not hesitate for a moment if given the chance to treat his eyes. In 1751, the 66-year-old Handel notes that his left eye seems to be weakening while composing a new piece. There's no pain, and the eye seems to return to normal after about a week, but Handel feels like something might be off with his health. He'd previously suffered a stroke in 1737, but he was under the impression that he'd fully recovered. Perhaps this passing eye weakness is a lingering effect of a previous health problem? For a year, the weakness comes and goes in Handel's eye. He makes the rounds of doctors seeking a diagnosis, but no one can quite tell him what might be wrong. Then, in 1752, the London-based doctor William Bromfield tells Handel that he can cure the composer's eyes with a couching procedure, the same needle-in-the-eye technique used by Taylor. The operation does not go well, and for the next six years, Handel's sight comes and goes. Newspapers report that Handel suffers from, quote, a paralytic disorder in the head, which has deprived him of sight, and he, quote, has at length, unhappily, quite lost his sight. Handel grows angry and bitter. He calls his health struggles worse than beggary, old age, or chains. He grows desperate, and by the end of the 1750s, he will try anything to regain his full sight. In August 1758, both Handel and Taylor, who is now 55, are in Tunbridge Wells, England. This is where the story gets murky. There are only two sources that claim Taylor operates on Handel. One is a poem entitled, On the Recovery of the Sight of the Celebrated Mr. Handel by the Chevalier Taylor. It's an anonymous poem published in the London Chronicle on August 15th, 1758, and Taylor does have a long history of planting anonymous stories in the press that sing his praises. The other source is Taylor's own autobiography. There's no other evidence available to verify the operation. If he did treat or couch Handel's eyes, Taylor, as with Bach, did not do a good job. Handel's sight is not restored, and even in Taylor's estimation, the eye is a lost cause and totally defective, unsalvageable, even with his miracle hands. Not long after the supposed operation, Handel's appetite fails. For nearly a year, he withers away in blindness and pain. He faints on April 6, 1759, and falls in and out of a coma, similar to Bach in his final days, before dying on April 14th. Handel is given a hero's funeral and buried in the famed Westminster Abbey, alongside the greatest artists and rulers in England's history. Perhaps he succumbed to his final illness due to lingering complications after treatment by Bromfield. Perhaps Taylor really did operate on Handel, and as was the case with Bach, he left the great composer infected and worse off than he was before. Or perhaps it's all just another curious coincidence of apocryphal history. 
we can never know for sure how much, exactly, Taylor contributed to the deaths of Bach and Handel. The evidence just isn't there, and it's impossible to cut through the myth-making and hearsay to land on anything resembling irrefutable fact. While the truth may never be separated from fiction, at this story's conclusion, we can say that the notion that Taylor contributed to their deaths, while not indisputably verifiable, is, without hesitation, at least believable. A self-aggrandizing, pompous man such as Taylor would never pass up the opportunity to treat anyone, let alone a celebrity of Handel's stature. We know, too, that Taylor left a wake of devastation in his work that ruined the lives of scores of patients. It's quite plausible, then, that Bach and Handel met similar ends at the hands of the Chevalier doctor. And it's this ambiguity, this inability to know where the truth ends and the legend begins, that defines the legacy of Dr. John Taylor. He's a man of contradictions, someone impossible to know, and someone so buried under his own delusions of grandeur that he becomes not unlike a character in a novel or a tragic play. In many ways, John Taylor's hubris is his undoing. His family tires of him, and he spends much of his life alone. He and his wife are never close, and their last decades are spent increasingly apart. His son, John Taylor Jr., who once threatened him with jail time, does all he can to distance himself from his father, and lives much of his life unmoored and drifting between journalism, bigamy, and spying for the British crown. It's as though John Jr. was always searching for something his father never provided. As we know, Dr. John Taylor blinds hundreds in his medical career and leaves an unknown number dead. He wears out his welcome nearly everywhere, and he's banished from a healthy portion of Europe. But he has talent, too. And he did make some meaningful contributions to eye medicine. The Chevalier Dr. John Taylor could have been, and in some ways was, one of the greatest medical minds of his generation. But his pride and his greed push him to become something not unlike an unwitting monster. Taylor's life and career are perhaps best summed up in the words of one of his contemporaries. In professional matters, his knowledge was good. He was a shrewd observer and not without original ideas. But his actual practice was tainted with the dishonest arts of the quack. Many elements go to the formation of the complete charlatan. Bombast. Affrontery. Dishonest. Ignorance. All these qualities Taylor showed in perfection. Except ignorance. And this is his chief condemnation. Taylor's life ends, as only it could, in a whirlwind of fact, half-truth, and outright legend. He dies sometime in the early 1770s, when he is in his late 60s, but exactly where and when cannot be known. Charles Burney, a famed British musician and historian, claims to have been the last to see Taylor in the 1770s. According to Bernie, the two men dined together in Rome that year, and then Taylor dies several days later, on November 16th. Or perhaps Taylor dies in Paris that same year, as several newspapers report. Or maybe it was 1772. In July of that year, the London papers claim that Taylor dies in a convent in Prague. No family or friends are in Rome, Paris, or Prague for Taylor's supposed death and burial. True. His family, for their part seem to accept that he dies in the Prague convent, but they had not heard from him in years. Regardless, the legend has it that Taylor is his own last patient. In the final years of his life, his own vision begins to fail, 
the cataracts he's long treated across Europe settle into his own eyes. His vision becomes cloudy and blurred. There's pain, too, and he feels his eyes bulge and they're swelling against the sockets. He's a believer in his own methods, though, despite all the blindness he's caused. So, one day he sits down alone in front of a mirror. He's looking at his own reflection, and for a fleeting moment, he takes into account what has brought him to this moment. He has visions of his pride, of the courts he visited, of the nobles he's known, and of all the pain he has inflicted upon so many innocent patients. But he can't waste time dwelling on these things, so he pushes all these thoughts away. He stares into his own pupils and pulls a sharp, hooked needle from his pocket. (sighs) Deep breath, and then the cold, piercing pressure of the instrument scraping against his own eye. For the first time, he's feeling what all of his patients have felt. In goes the needle, further, further, and then it's over. He places a baked apple over his eye and coils a bandage around his head. Already he knows, infection will soon settle in. It's uncertain what ran through John Taylor's mind as he lay on his deathbed, the infection that claimed hundreds of his patients slowly coursing through his own body. Was it remorse? Who knows? The techniques he used at the time weren't completely uncommon and did provide temporary relief. Yet, had he informed his patients of the risks and not disguised untested and extremely risky medical procedures with all the dog and pony of a carnival barker, surely many would have appropriately wavered, right? Well, for Dr. John Taylor, it never really seemed to be about the patients. That, for sure, is plain to see. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Timothy L. Fosbury. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Hey, everyone. Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.